really good to have you uh, to finally get a chance for us to sit down and talk recorded that is so we can share our amazing conversations with everybody else <laughs> i don't know if they want to hear all of them <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's fair there's censorship <laughs> yeah definitely okay. needs to be that so give me uh give me just a little if you were to describe yourself just in the sense of like your professional pedigree and your educational background just to get yeah. people kind of tuned in with who you are Oh boy. Well, um, well, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. I went to uh, Brownell Talbots uh, for most of my, uh, un- I guess, career in uh, high school and junior high. And then uh, I am a graduate of Creighton University as well. And I have a dual degree in cultural and medical anthropology with an emphasis in Native American culture. Um, I have a background in medical as well. Um, being in the EMT and in the EMS system uh, for, geez, almost 20 years now. Um, Also worked at the Nebraska Medical Center and inpatient pharmacy and got my start in pharmacy at Kubot's Pharmacy. Um, So I've been in pharmacy for on and off for 20 years as well. Done cardiac arrhythmia monitoring at uh, Creighton University Medical Center. Um, and I've done disaster uh, medical relief for about 10 years. Got my start after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. It's an incredible way to, <laughs> to break into that field. <laughs> I guess if you're going to start with any emergency, that's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty legit it was, kickoff. It was a pretty life-altering, honestly. Yeah. Like anything that I'd learned or been prepared for till then, it just all kind of went out the window. It was in kind of indescribable situation, not just the fact it was a developing country and the poverty level was something of which I had never been exposed to personally before, but in the wake of just the absolute devastation with all of that going on at the same time was, uh, I don't even know if I have words for it still. It was just, uh, it it was life altering for me uh, to see to see that and it was just kind of all at once so and that was your first time leaving the country was it not it absolutely was yeah I'd never been overseas before um so I'd never even really seen the ocean before (laughs) right so Nebraska's kind of landlocked a little it's very very (laughs) landlocked I had briefly seen the ocean once when I was in my early 20s when I was in, yeah. in Atlantic City. Not exactly the best beach experience for your first time. <laughs> not, not idyllic. <laughs> not, not, not so, no. But um, yeah, and then all of a sudden it was like, here you go. And I'm on a plane to New York and then New York all the way down to, to Haiti, flying over the ocean and incredible walking into this situation that, you know, I had no idea what was going to happen. So walk me through, like, how did this opportunity, where were you at in life and how did this opportunity to go and volunteer at Haiti um, present itself to you? Um, well, I, it was actually my senior year at, at, when I was in, at Creighton um, that I got the call. It was, you know, right after, the, not long after the earthquake had actually happened. And I'd actually, I'd signed up years before um, with some different agencies after the tsunami that had taken place over in uh, Southeast Asia. Yeah. And I was like, I would love to be part of something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I 
you know, it had been years. I'd never heard any, you know, nobody had ever contacted me because I didn't have any experience. I'd never even been overseas, but right. they were in such need of, you know, medical people at the time um, with what happened in Haiti that I just, I randomly one night got a, uh, got a call and they said, you know, we had your file and, you know, we saw that you're EMS and you have quite a bit of experience with like pharma- pharmacy and this kind of stuff. Would you want to go? And ironically enough, it was also the evening before my grandfather's funeral. So I said, yeah, I'd like to go. And one of my kind of deciding factors was because I thought that that would absolutely be something that my grandfather would want me to do. So that's how it all kind of got started. Wow. That's amazing. Because I could definitely see that being an obstacle, just dealing with the emotional roller coaster that is losing somebody that's close to you. And then having something that you were not planning on being a part of. And especially in such a, it's not like, hey, I'm going to go vacation. Like, I'm, I'm going to this island and I'm going to go hang out on the beach and drink Mai Tais. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, my family kind of had a fit, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, because they, you know, they were going through the emotional turmoil of everything that had happened. Kind of losing the patriarch of our family. I mean, as yeah. was I, but... Um, you know, it, it was a very, uh, it was a very fluid situation over there still, you know, nobody, uh, you know, the government had completely, uh, kind of ran out of the presidential palace. There was no formal government. Uh, they were at the point where the U S government was actually temporarily taking over, um, how they were going to be running everything, um, in the country currently with, uh, you know, our forces and, and military that were going over there to assist and things like that. So there, you know, it, the situation was changing hour per hour. So to try to, I guess, explain to your family <laughs> yeah. when you've never been anywhere and you're going to go put yourself in this situation, they're like, well, what's going on? It's like, well, in an hour, it's going to be completely different than yeah. what I just, just heard. And I've got, you know, a week before I leave. So I have no clue what it's going to be like once we get there. Yeah, I was actually, I was, we had talked about this before. I was supposed to go and the way that the military handles that on our end, or at least from what I saw, I was, I had just joined. I just got out of basic training and I, uh, I remember I packed up my bags, everybody packed up their bags and we went to the unit and we weren't allowed to leave. And we were there for like four or five days, just I think, sitting I think on our bags. Chat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that we might actually run into each other. And I know. I was actually one of us had ever been anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, first time out of the country for both of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least I'll know somebody there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, but you were also, so you're a senior. At what I'm, I'm like trying to remember that was, it had to be January, February. Um, it happened in January. Yeah, it was 2010. I think it was the 12th of January, actually, wow. when the initial um, kind of quakes went through. So it was, I mean, it was a couple, it, it was a couple weeks later, but um, there had been, you know, major emergency response, like University of Miami and stuff was, was yeah. on the ground, I think, pretty quick. And right. um, obviously our military forces and some, some other, you know, re, you know, Red Cross, I don't know even if it was Red Cross, um, there are some different ones when they're developing countries that they call it something different, but oh, okay. So uh, there was UN forces everywhere. As oh, well. really? So yeah. 
So how integrated were you with, with them? Were you guys operating completely independently or is there like a cohesive overall effort or some sort of organization taking place? So um, the agency that I went with was a nonprofit. Um, We partnered with a couple nonprofits and some of the military, local military forces that were on the ground. Um, But everybody was, was working pretty well together because there was such an, such a need for certain kinds of supplies. And some people had an over influx of certain things and other people didn't have that. So there was a lot of exchanging kind of going on between groups um, when we were there, but we actually, our, our group was set up where we were running our kind of, our, our base of operations was at a place called SEMO, uh, which was, I'm still not really clear on what their role with the Haitian government is, but they're right across, literally right across the street from the presidential palace in Haiti. Um, oh, and they were a secure compound, um, but most of those guys um, that worked there and were the I got, I don't think they're military. I think it'd be more like our, our like police force locally, like within the United States. Got uh, it. Most of those guys, all their houses were completely crushed. So they had had to bring all of their families and children into the complex as well. They were all living in like, we were all living there. Together. So I mean, we had to, you were living in the presidential palace. No, 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 not that. We that, were I, living in the SEMO complex. Oh, the SEMO, yeah, okay, across. The police right. complex across the street from the presidential palace. And I got concerned we, for a minute because I remember you, <laughs> the video that I saw of Haiti, and I was like, that building was cracked in half. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, actually, if you, we, we got to SEMO uh, because they had access to the presidential palace, took us behind, like, into the compound through the only way that the president of Haiti is usually allowed to go in. Um, and from the back of it, the structure was so damaged. It looked like, it looked like a dollhouse. So it might ha- like look nice on the front, but then you turn around and like, there's nothing on the back. You could look into every room and like wow. see there's like a music room or whatever, but it was just completely demolished. I mean, it was crazy demolished. Yeah. That's insane. So, and th- so getting back to like kind of the start. So you were in your senior year in college at I, Creighton Medical University. Uh, uh, Creighton. Yep. Creighton University, yeah. Yeah, so what was what was going on, and you had just dealt with the death in the family. So what about right. the school aspect of things? So you're just picking up and leaving. Like, it's January. You're, it seems like you'd be in the heat of it. So um, I think I went, it was like the end of February, early March. So this is probably like six weeks after. Um, but it just happened to be that the week we were going was going to be right before our spring break. <laughs> and partly into our final exam. So I had to contact all my professors and be like, can I try to take some of these exams sooner um, before the break, whatever sure. it is. And then, yeah, I just, because of the situation that was happening, I mean, a lot of people, especially, you know, the university with the fact that it, it was sending down its own medical teams and stuff oh, too. Okay. Everybody was pretty understanding um, with that. It was just, I, I had to spend a lot of time, not just, preparing for exams and figuring out how to pack to go to a country I'd never been to, (laughs) but obviously talking to instructors and trying to like work out things, uh, you know, on that front as well. So it it was an an intense, like, uh, about week and a half leading up until I left because I, again, I didn't have a passport either. Oh my gosh. I had to call. Everything. Yeah. How did you make that happen in such a short period of time? 
so I was looking around. I, I, for a minute, I was getting really worried. I was like, I might not be able to go because they're saying, you know, it's going to be six weeks to get a passport. Um, so I talked to my dad, actually, and he goes, well, call the congressman's office. And I was like, what are they going to do? <laughs> That's their job. So I did. I called, uh, I called the congressman's office. I said, I've been asked to be, you know, a, a disaster medical relief worker in Haiti. I don't have a passport. What can you do? And they set up the whole thing with the post office, said, bring this, this, and this. Go down there. On a Monday, it was like a Monday afternoon. Um, the congressman's office said, call us when you get there. They called in to the post office I was at and said, you will push this through. This oh. guy came out with this like official like state stamp or whatever. They sent it, wow. actually forwarded all my paperwork directly to a guy in Seattle. Um, and he pushed it through and they said, you'll have it by Friday. And it did. It came, it, you know, they sent it overnight and it was in my hands by Friday morning. It was crazy. I've never heard of such government efficiency in my life. <laughs> uh, I've never witnessed it since either. So. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a, Appar that's, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, apparently for, uh, yeah, those kind of disaster, you know, medical relief workers, they have a special, special route or in yeah, like an expedited they, process. Sure. Yeah. They got it done. I was surprised. I was like, there's no way it's going to get here on time. Cause I think I had to leave the next day. I think I had to leave the next morning. Um, That's to fly insane. out. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I had to fly into like New York or whatever and stay the night though. Cause our whole team was meeting up in, uh, and flying out of JFK together. Um, yeah. so Omaha to JFK and then, uh, basically I, again, had never done really any traveling like that. So I looked up a hostel cause I was only going to be there for like eight hours and didn't want to pay for a hotel. So sure. I'm in this like crazy hostel with like six other total strangers in Spanish Harlem in, in oh New York. God. Oh <laughs> and then at JFK at like, you know, 2.30 AM, you know, meeting a group of like 25 total strangers getting on a plane and going to be gone for two weeks and have yeah. no idea what we're walking into. So, so what, so what was, what was it like? Walk, talk to me about the steps you took off the plane and your perspective <laughs> once you hit the ground. So I wasn't really sure what to expect. The only thing that I'd ever really heard about other countries um, and really having an idea of what to expect was uh, stuff that my dad had told me because he was drafted um, into the military, into the army um, during the Vietnam War. And he said, no matter what you see or what people tell you, you'll never be prepared for it. He goes, the minute they open the door and you walk off that plane and the heat and the smell of the country hit you in the face like a brick wall, then you'll get it. And that's pretty much exactly what it was like. It was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And you, so you were, you worked directly with a team of how many people while you were there? Oh God, I think there was probably like about 25 of us, 27 okay. of us or something like that. There, there was a good group. I mean, we had dentists, we had you know, uh, EMS, we had nurses, we had doctors I and mean, it, it was almost all obviously medical folks. I think yeah. there was a couple that, that weren't, um, just to help kind of facilitate like the logistic side of things. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it was all people that had some kind of medical background. So. And so, and you guys stayed, how long were you there for? It was about two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. And what were you, what did you find yourself primarily doing? Like you were, you were just assisting, uh, 
like I think I remember seeing you around some of the dental folks. Yeah. So the first couple of days, so they did, the thing is with that I've learned since going on that trip and I've done several others, um, they very rarely have anybody in pharmacy. (laughs) (laughs) So we bring these big, huge army duffel bags of of medications. Right. So I mean, and they're all scattered together because you can't put like all your antibiotics in, in one and then all of this in another because if one bag doesn't make it then you don't have anything for that condition so everything's got to be completely mixed together Um, so having to then open up five duffel huge duffel bags full of all these like random medications i had to go through everything and so i set up the entire like uh, the entire pharmacy because there wasn't anyone else that knew what any of this stuff was wow um and kind of make a makeshift formulary you know, while we we're there. So I did that, I think for the first couple of days. And then, um, we got a couple of Haitian pharmacy students that came in and it was a lot easier, you know, that I could kind of oversee some of the stuff that they would actually put together the scripts and would have to have the consultations. Cause I couldn't do anything without a translator anyway, cause they all speak right. real. Um, but after that, um, I met a really amazing, uh, pediatric dentist that was there uh, by the name of Dr. Jeff Marks. And he's got a couple practices out in uh, Seattle and I'd been exposed to a lot of different medicine over the years. So, you know, I'd seen intensive care and labor and delivery and all these different things from when I worked at the Nebraska medical center, but I'd never really been a part of dental. Um, so I was kind of interested in that. So, uh, I would say for probably over a week, I assisted with dental. So let's just say that I got to operate well out of my scope of practice (laughs) that I would ever be allowed to do in the United States. Um, Obviously under the direct supervision of a qualified professional. We appreciate Um, (laughs) Yeah. um, But yeah, it was, it was actually really enlightening to see that even from the U.S. perspective, there's people that can get healthcare, but dental is still very much needed, even in, in the United States. Yeah. Um, and the impacts on your overall health, poor oral health, and bad dental can cause you in the long term. Um, and it's the same. It, it's even more apparent in developing countries. So right. we had we had kids that were five or six that were coming by themselves and standing in line for hours with I was I was just thinking I'm like when I'm in my head and I'm picturing and I'm thinking about disaster relief and I'm thinking about the medical side and I I instantly go to you know people trapped under rubble broken bones like severe hemorrhaging and there's a lot of that (laughs) never yeah of course but I never once thought about the dental aspect of things and how significant of an impact that 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 can have on a community. Did you have anybody in particular? Um, I know it's, you said that you ended up having like kids walking up. Did you have any, anybody that stood out to you particularly of the people that you treated? Um, I think that I guess just what stood out to me was the, the little kids that would come stand by themselves because adults here in the U S don't want to go to the dentist. (laughs) (laughs) It's avoided like the plague. Right. So the fact that we have these little kids that they don't understand anything that you're saying, Mm -hmm. they don't know what to expect. 
uh, they don't have anybody there with them and they're, they, they still are in so much pain that they're willing to stand there to have somebody do whatever it is to them, you know? And again, just a bunch of people with masks on. Yeah. No idea what they're saying. Yeah. And, can't and whatever. Directly. Sure. Yeah. I, I will say that uh, ever since I saw that, I've happily go to the dentist now. And no matter what they yeah. do, I don't have any complaints because, <laughs> you know, I mean, we were, we were doing, you know, dental surgeries uh, with headlamps on um, in, in buildings where buildings outside of us were still collapsing because um, the structures were damaged and they hadn't completely gone down yet. And people wow. would loot them or high winds would go through and the whole building would collapse. And, you know, and we're pulling like uh, broken lawn chairs, like out of ditches for people to sit in so that we can try to do dental surgery. So I was like, yeah, I don't have any reason to complain about going to the dentist ever again. Seriously. And that's a whole nother aspect that the entire setting of this treatment, it's not, you're not in a hospital, are you? Like, oh, no, 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 no. We're like, we're working out of uh, a lot of time. Well, we worked out of some areas. They were actually displaced person camps that have been put up by the UN. So we're talking like in 120 degree heat with dirt floors and like chickens and wild pigs running through, like while you're like trying to <laughs> do stuff. Um, lines of people, you know, that have been waiting three hours before we open, just treating hundreds of people a day. And yeah, it's crazy. Like, I mean, sterility, <laughs> you really try your best, but you know, it's not like we have like autoclaves or anything to clean anything. Yeah. Um, you know, we're having to use cold sterile, um, which is kind of an, an archaic um, way to do it. But you know, you just, you, you figure out ways to adapt to the environment that you're in to make it work, you know, and that's just what you got to do. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have running water. We didn't have plumbing. I mean, our own team, we didn't have showers for two weeks. You know, we didn't have toilets. It was, we had to bring our own tents. We put our tents on the rooftop of the four story building that we were staying in and you showered with baby wipes and you slept in 120 degree heat. Um, Some of the tents we'd work at in the day, were so hot inside that if you walked outside and it was only about 110 or 112, you would get goosebumps because it felt chilly. Outside. Oh my gosh. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a little toasty. Yeah. Toasty. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there was times that we, you know, members of our team at the end of the night, we'd, we'd have to, you know, go back and, and, uh, try to make like a crutch like take a crutch and right. set it up and put a nail in it so we could hang an IV bag off of it and like hook people up to IVs because we were getting crazy dehydrated. Like people weren't used to those conditions. Oh, no, of course not. So our own team was like going down. And yeah. Them. Yeah. It was who, treats the, who treats the professionals? We, 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 we treat our, you know, we treat each other. Yeah, know? exactly. So that's what happens. So you get done with this trip. The first time out of the country, seeing this insane event that just took place this disaster and you're inspired to my I would I would imagine a lot of people are like well I'm happy I was there and I never want to be involved in that kind of chaos again that didn't seem to be your response to this event um well I, I guess not um I mean I, first of all I came back home and I finished college 
Yeah. yeah. I had to actually, I was, I was in college all through summer school too. So I didn't, I didn't graduate till the following August or didn't finish my classes, I should say. Um, and then after that, I was actually, I think it was supposed to be that October. I was supposed to go to Burma on another trip or Myanmar is what they refer to it now. Yeah. Old Burma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually got, ended up with a really bad knee injury and I had to cancel that trip. So I couldn't go. Um, so I think the next one I went on, I, I actually, I went back to Haiti again. Oh, really? Um, round two, huh? Yeah. Round two, went back to Haiti. Actually, uh, again, my good buddy, Dr. Jeff Marks, uh, the dentist, he gave me a call. He's like, they asked me to go. Would you, are you, are you in? And I was like, I haven't heard about it, but let me look. And I was like, yep, let's do it. So your passport's go already again. good this time, ready to go. <laughs> It actually wasn't because when I was supposed to go to Burma uh, to get your Burmese visa, you have mm-hmm. to send in your passport to the Burmese embassy in DC. Oh, okay. So I had sent my passport to get my, my visa. And then when I realized I couldn't go, they wouldn't return it to me. <laughs> so I had to file that it was stolen. And then I had to then go through the process the second time to go to Haiti an to get another. Country. Yeah. <laughs> Stolen by the Burmese embassy, which they said they would give it back to me if I paid like four hundred dollars. It's like and I said, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And when I again called the congressman's office and I talked to the same guy, he worked. Uh, God, I'm trying to think who the congressman was at the time. I I, I only dealt with his uh, like his right hand guy. His name was Greg Long, and I call Greg okay. again. I'm like, Hey, Greg, it's Kelly. I'm sure you're super sick of hearing from me. Yeah. I have another passport problem. He's like, don't pay it. He's like, this happens all the time. They take when they, those embassies that, cause it's a, it's a communist country. Yeah. So they said this happens a lot with a lot of these communist countries that when they require you send in your passport to the embassy to try to extort money, they'll say, you got to pay all these extra fees. But and even if you pay them, then they'll come back and say, no, we're going to require you to pay like another $400. Yep. I was like, no. We'll just go ahead and say that it's a stolen passport from the Burmese embassy and we'll let us, know when you, we'll let us know when you get back to the, you know, get back to the, uh, the post office and we'll make another call. We'll get it taken yeah. care of again. And I was like, thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> so, that's amazing. That so is twice. Yeah, two twice times. I had to. You got expedited twice. That's pretty cool. Got it. Got it expedited <laughs> two times. Yep. <laughs> you know, I actually had a similar experience when I went to Indonesia. I was, uh, that was the first time I left the country and I remember we landed and I had no idea what to do. No one explained foreign travel to me because everyone I was traveling with had been overseas like at least dozens of times. Like that's what they right. were living. They just traveled. And so I show up and everyone's just, you know, they know exactly what to do and they're going to do it. I'm, I get off the plane, I go and get my bags or I'm going on the way to get my bags and there's a bunch of these stands uh in between where you where you get off the plane and where you go you know claim your baggage Mm -hmm. and there's so there's people standing there i'm like oh okay i must have to like check in with these people because it's it's in the way so i went up and i was like (laughs) you know i'm here uh just gonna go get my bags and they're like yeah no you just gotta pay for your visa and i was like oh I didn't know that was a thing. Okay. Like how much is it? And it was, it was pretty cheap. Uh, it was probably like 50, like 45 or 50 bucks. And I was like, cool, got it. So I paid and went on and I looked around like, wow, this was happening. Cause it took like 10, 15 minutes to do. I looked around and I didn't see a single one of the people that I flew there with. 
<laughs> they were not there. And I'm like, uh-huh. uh, and I see them. They walked right past it, like through the gates. Didn't say anything. Just walked right through and went to go get their bags. And I see them exiting the room, and I was like, "What? How did you get? Hey, guys, you forgot to get your visa." <laughs> and they, they looked they're like, like mm-hmm. they're, like, <laughs> they're like, "Did you pay?" And I was like, "Yeah." They're like, "Dumbass." <laughs> <laughs> No, it's super confusing, though, because, again, I mean, when you're flying into airports like that, um, it's super confusing because a lot of the people in the country make their money by trying to, like, get your bags and things for you and sell you, like, SIM cards and do all this, like, crazy stuff. And, again, like, when people that haven't traveled, I guess, to like developing countries also don't realize like when they say go to baggage claim, I don't know how it was in Indonesia. I haven't been through there, but like when I was in Haiti, it was baggage claim through your bags. in. <laughs> like, you know, there, there wasn't like, there wasn't something they put it on. It like goes around. It was just like, they threw your bag in and you had to like dig yeah. through a pile, pile. of like, crazy <laughs> luggage to find yours. Yeah. <laughs> you figure it out. That's one of those, uh, one of those small first world luxuries that we don't think about the conveyor belt. Oh, there's, Everyone oh, God, hates yeah, it. there's, there's <laughs> so many. Mm-hmm. So thinking about your next show, how many trips did you go on? Uh, how many times have you traveled for emergency disaster relief and where have you gone? So I would say like for like a legitimate disaster, I would say Haiti is probably the only like that was actual disaster relief instead of like okay. medical okay. or humanitarian relief. Okay. Um, I did get asked to go to Nepal after the earthquake there, but I could not make that work with my situation at my job. Um, when that happens, but I, I've been to, I, I went to Haiti three times. Um, I wow. went uh, to Cambodia. I went to Ethiopia and India as well. And, and well in Puerto Rico. And these were all, you were um, supporting medically. You were going there providing uh, medical help. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, mostly medical. Uh, when I was in Puerto Rico, which is actually just this last January, um, the team of us that went, that was, uh, it was all um, to help rebuild homes that were still damaged a year after the uh, the hurricanes that they had last sure. year. So putting on roofs and making sure people have a door or a window that still, um, you go into, we were on, well, we flew into San Juan for that one. But we worked on a small island that's off the eastern coast of Puerto Rico called Vieques. Very, very small island um, and very neglected in a lot of ways. Um, beautiful mm-hmm. island, you know, lots of, I think a fair, fairly good amount of tourism. Oh, yeah. Um, but if you get into like where people are actually living, there, there were still people there that had um, the blue tarps that FEMA had dropped off over a year before. Wow. Um, families that were, five six people still living in one room because that was the only room of their house that had like a secure door on it and a secure window the rest of the house was like uninhabitable like basically um again roofs that like weren't on homes still covered with tarps so there's still a huge huge need in puerto rico um for for helping people with just basic security features of their homes and i mean like having a front door having a roof like (laughs) 
It's so, uh, very still prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that I think a lot of people have forgotten about just because it's not, you know, in the headlines every day. And so we just assume <laughs> that it's, it's taken care of. Like, oh, we stopped hearing about it. So it's, it's good to go. It's very, very easy to forget. I mean, I remember even when I was going back to Haiti the first couple of times, people are like, we've sent like billions of dollars. How is it that like, there's still a problem? But the thing is, is that poverty is such a systemic issue. And yeah. so is health and health is directly tired. I'm sorry, tied to poverty. Yeah. And so you can give a whole bunch of money to somebody, but if they're not educated and there's no basic infrastructure, that money will run out. So again, it goes back to the whole, do I teach a man to fish kind of thing? Right. Um, if you throw, and, and unfortunately, and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and say, this is my opinion. I think the U.S. is very good at throwing band-aids at issues and band-aids yeah. are money. Yeah, um, so we see all of these problems like that we ignore um, for a very long time. Yeah. But then there's a disaster and it's like, oh my God, we have to do something. We got to help mm -hmm. these people. Well, they're like, they have this main problem all the time. Right. Um, but nobody hears about it because it's uncomfortable and people don't like to feel bad and feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I helped with the, uh, current Midwest flooding that just happened in, in, you know, where we're from. Yep. Um, oh, almost over all of March, um, and just kind of banded together with some other local folks that I met on Facebook that I've never met in real life. Wow. And we were coordinating deliveries and supplies of things that went from Iowa, Nebraska, and up into South Dakota. And we worked a lot with the the Native American reservations that are up there. It's actually the largest Native American reservation in South Dakota, the, the, the Sioux, the Sioux uh, territory up there of Native Americans and indigenous folks. And, you know, stuff was coming out on the Washington Post and Al Jazeera and everything about how because of the flooding, as bad as it was in Nebraska and Iowa, that what they were saying was happening on the Native American reservations was an actually a legitimate humanitarian crisis because they were already a completely impoverished nation before all of the extra stuff that happened with the flooding. And well, they had the flooding and the blizzards. Yeah. So they had parts of the reservation that were buried in snow. And then they had other parts of it that were so flooded that it was washing their homes away. And they already, like I said, are in a horrible state of, of poverty before that happened. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people had never heard of what was going on up there. I actually, because my degree, I, I chose to specialize in Native American culture, had done two years of my undergrad research on that reservation. Oh, so wow. I was very familiar with the incidents and disparities of my main focus was health. So disparities of health, um, 800% higher rate of diabetes than in the United States. Um, three times a higher rate of infant mortality than the United States. Um, 92% unemployment rate, you know, 300% higher drug and alcohol abuse. 
um, all those kinds of things. And again, those are all directly related to poverty. Well, and for them, especially colonization mm-hmm. and just, again, uh, they're kind of isolated on these pieces of land that nobody wants to hear about it and nobody, cause it's uncomfortable and they just don't know about it. They don't educate themselves. Um, that, that particular Native American reservation actually has the highest mortality rates, second only to Haiti in, in the entire Western Hemisphere. Yes. The average lifespan of a Native American that lives on the Sioux Reservation, I, I believe, is 48 years old. That's the life expectancy. And that's inside of the United States. That's and, <laughs> that's in the United States, and we yeah. and we accept that. That is insane. We do, and it's I th- mm-hmm. it's just like you said. I mean, it's really interesting because I fall prey to this all the time. But there's there's an attention span issue. You know, you hear absolutely about, you hear about a problem, and you're like this is a really big deal, and I care a lot about it. Like, okay, maybe I can't go. I'll donate money, and you just pray that this money's used wisely, and then you just kind of move on because I have to work. I got to provide for my kids. I've, I have responsibilities I need to take care of. And then you just forget about it, you know, and you just move on. And then another disaster happens. And so it just feeds into the, the short attention span that we have. And it goes to exactly like you said, with these band-aids where, I mean, I, I, when you said, when you're talking about the money that was thrown at Haiti and people are like, well, we sent billions of dollars. And I was like, dude, my immediate thought was, have you not paid attention to the education system? You know, like we throw so much money into the system and the results don't change, right? We're still, we're still not increasing teacher salaries. We're still not increasing test scores. Um, And so you can't just throw money at these things. You need ideas, you need innovation. And with the short attention span, it's hard to, it's hard to, to see that being fixed. Well, I don't think it's just the ideas and the innovation portion. So in Haiti in particular, so, okay, if you say that we're donating money, what's it going to? So let's just say it's rebuilding homes. Mm-hmm. We're going to give them money to rebuild a home. Okay. Well, the way that they build homes is completely different than we do in the United States because Caribbean housing is very different than the way that we build it in the mainland United States. Right. Second. So most of it is almost all cinder block. It's very heavy. You know, it's, it's not wood and, and, and drywall, right? Yeah. It won't hold up in a Caribbean climate. So it's Makes all sense. cinder block. So if that collapses, you've got, thousands and thousands of pounds of cinder block and rebar. So how do you move it? Yeah. How do you move rubble and what do you move it with and where does it go? Because say, say that you're going to take out your trash. Where do you take it out to? Just, I'm saying like empty your kitchen trash. Mm -hmm. You take out your trash bag. Where do you go throw it? Yeah, go, well, for me, I, yeah, we have a dumpster, so we go take it and throw it in the dumpster. Right. Well, Pick who, by who the, picks that up? Yeah, waste management swings by with their big truck, and they right. lift it up, throw it in the back, and, condense it, and, and the, take it to a landfill. Okay. Well, let's just say that there is no public service where they come and pick up your trash. What do you do with it? 
because that doesn't exist in Haiti. Right. It's so, crazy. That simple. If you can't that, even get, if you can't even get your basic trash like taken away from your home, yeah. then how do you remove thousands upon thousands of pounds of concrete and metal to make space to rebuild a house? <laughs> yeah, and that's. I mean, it's funny because that's one of the basic things that they teach you, like when you start in the army and you're learning field craft. They talk about the separation of where you eat and where you, where you sleep and where you work and where the waste goes and like, and how fundamental Mm -hmm. those things are to your ability for your ability to survive and continue operating in a space. Like you have to separate these things. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you have a space with 125,000 displaced people that are basically living in tents. And when I say tents, I mean like, They've cut open rice, empty rice sacks, and they've nailed them to two by fours. And that is their tent that maybe a family of five or six lives in that is six by five feet. And it's a dirt floor and they've dug, you know, latrines like on the outskirts. But if you've got 125,000 people going to the bathroom two or three times a day on the outskirts and they've been in that camp for two or three years, what do you think is going to happen? And then compound that with the fact that they get hurricanes every year. So they're yeah. going to get rains and flooding. What's the first thing that's going to flood over? A, 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 a latrine trench, which mm-hmm. then goes what? All through that camp where there's no flooring and there's no bottom. So they're basically living in sewage. And then there's a cholera epidemic. And this happens repeatedly year after year. Sounds like we need to fly these people off the island. <laughs> like, this doesn't. Well, the thing is, though. It, well, no, it, it, it's not. And so, you know, since I started doing that, I have a couple of different takes on, you know, the value of of NGOs or you know, nonprofits, non governmental organizations, mm-hmm. and that is we've got to transition from i would say in in a in a disaster acute and immediate help is needed yes but if it's in a non-disaster setting it has to be focused on long-term sustainable education and development yeah um because otherwise what we're really doing is creating a population of dependency if you don't teach anybody how to do anything and they don't take partial ownership of it, and it isn't sustainable, it can't continue to function, which means that population then becomes dependent on only waiting around for the next NGO that's going to come in and hand out water or hand out food yeah. or hand out medical mm-hmm. care. Um, and, they, and the longer that cycle continues, that's also passed on to the next generation. So instead of passing on a multi-generation of dependency we i really my belief is that ngos need to focus heavily on sustainable development that can increase overall education and health um, and let those individuals take ownership because i think it it's a it's a fallacy with the United States culture, especially people that have never traveled and haven't really spent any time with local people 
in impoverished areas that they're too lazy or they don't want to do that or whatever it is. And that's not the case in my experience. They just don't have the immediate way to step up and do it. If you give somebody a step up, again, I can tell somebody, you need to go fish all you want, but if I don't mm-hmm. give them a fishing pole, they can't do anything with yeah, that. Yeah, and then show I can them say, how to use it. Here's everything about how to like catch a fish. Mm-hmm. Here's how you catch a fish. You should be catching a fish. Why aren't you catching a fish? Well, I don't yeah. have a fishing pole. Oh, or maybe I've got a fishing pole, but all I need is a hook, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I actually feel like maybe that's a better example. So like they have the the desire to fish and they have right. they have the pole and they have the fishing line and they know where to go to do it and they mm-hmm. know why they need to do it but they need all they need is that one little piece that's missing they need the, the fishing hook so in, in my experience it's been if you just give the person the hook they'll they'll go catch fish all day long well and there's you know but there's pride instead we're just like here's fish here's fish yeah <laughs> you know and then and then why would why would you want, like, I, I don't understand how you could expect somebody to be motivated to find a way to, to fish themselves if they know that it's just going to keep coming. And like you said, it creates that sense of that a culture of dependency. And then the kids well, watch their parents just receiving things, you know, and it's and a learned not, behavior. Yeah, exactly. It's inculcating it over generations. Absolutely. Um, no, I mean, I, I think for the most part, you know, it's a, it's a basic human desire to feel um, challenged and needed in your community and have Absolutely. personal value and to have autonomy. And when you remove those things from an individual, there's no motivation or incentive to go beyond that. That's why things like communism don't work. Yeah. Why is it I should work twice as hard? to get the same amount that somebody that doesn't do anything does. Um, so, I mean, that's not to say that I don't believe in social where- welfare. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's because I, obvi- I obviously yeah. do. That's like what I've dedicated my life <laughs> to. However, um, I do think that, I mean, if, if everybody just looks at themselves individually, you know, what are the things, if you're going to take a job, what are the things that matter to you most? I mean, Gallup, you know, everyone knows the Gallup polls and well, mm-hmm. we both know Gallup because Gallup headquarters is in Omaha where we grew up. Amen. Um, and those are <laughs> polls that they take, take everywhere. And yeah. some of them are, you know, what are your top five things that you need to feel fulfilled in your job? And they are things like feeling challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, making an impact, um, caring about what I do, things like that. If you don't have that, then again, what's the incentive to move forward? Absolutely. It's- I think NGOs need to be more focused on creating that for, um, for these areas. Again, that is a very oversimplified of course, um, statement of course. on my part, which I understand because the the situation worldwide is so multifaceted. I mean, if I were to say that all we need to do is, is do that would be an extremely myopic viewpoint, but um, you know, you got to start somewhere. And I also think that a lot of the reason that the world is in the state it is in because everybody does feel incredibly overwhelmed. I think there's an inherent good in people they do care about each other and they do want to do good things and they do care about the world. 
but it's such an overwhelming issue. How, where do you start? And I think everybody, again, we, we become such a society of instant gratification that nobody has the, nobody wants to really, especially work for something that's going to make them feel good. Like we're willing to work at our jobs, right? Because we get paid. Mm -hmm. But if all you're doing is to see change, change takes a long time to kind of take hold. And it can be a very disheartening process. Trust me, over the last 10 years since I started this journey, I've wanted to give up multiple times. When it goes to, um, I think, a, a very important aspect about motivation in general and the different types of motivation, because the motivation that you're talking about with I work and so I get paid, that's that extrinsic, you know, like I'm doing something for a reward. And so I don't, it's like the weakest form of motivation. It works, you know, punishment and reward. I'm not going to do that because this bad thing's going to happen. I'm going to do that because this good thing is going to happen. That, but that type of but, uh, motivation is not going to sustain change like you're talking about, like cultural, generational change in a country or in the world. Like it has to be, well, it goes to the motivation that you were just talking about where you've had to overcome these obstacles over, over a decade to stay in it because there's something more rewarding for you personally as Kelly, you know, than just you do it and you see a reward. Well, not to sound cliche, I do feel like it's my calling. It's, it's something that um, I do enjoy. And I guess it would be ignorant to say that I don't get something out of it. I, I do get oh, the course. joy out of doing it. Well, that's, um, that's the difference. And, it's not and a even material. while I say it, 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 it sounds selfish though. Um, <laughs> when I say it like that, I guess. And that's, and that's but okay. I do it because I think that the world would be a much better place if everybody just did something nice for each other. Like, so kind of back to, you know, my, my point uh, a little bit earlier here was, you know, everybody feels really overwhelmed. You know, how do you fix all these huge problems? What if we don't have to fix a huge problem? What if all you do is just something nice for another person? Fixing one little thing for one person can mean the absolute world to them. You know, what if you've got a single mother that's got three kids and she works two jobs and her car broke down and all you do is be like, I'm running to the grocery store. Do you want to come with? You know, those are all things that we can do. Or you've got the, you know, disabled elderly veteran living next to you and it snowed and he's out there shoveling. I'll, I'll get your walk today. Don't worry about it. Like yeah. those are all things that we absolutely can do on an everyday basis. Even what's saying, you look really nice today. Yeah. Sometimes that's like the only nice thing that's going to happen in that person's entire day is that they're going to hear that. And it can change. And it doesn't cost day. us anything to do yeah. it. It doesn't cost you anything to do it. Kindness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way the, from when you talk about this, the way that I see that change taking place, like when, if we're talking about, you know, trying to make big changes in the world and starting small, it's, it's about establishing and reinvigorating community because as, yes. as the internet has become, you know, dominant and social media ever present, we're more connected now 
with more people than we've ever been. But it's like we're more isolated at the same time. So Absolutely. I could not agree more. We're more disconnected on personal levels than we ever yeah. have been while living in an age that we have the most technology and ability to actually get things done than we ever have been in our entire lives. We have an Which amazing really tool. really unfortunate. Yeah, we have yeah. this amazing yeah. tool to connect and we use it, uh, you know, kind of haphazardly. To share cat memes. <laughs> don't get me wrong. And don't get me wrong. I enjoy a good Some cat Some days you need a cat meme. <laughs> that could be the good thing that I you agree. provide in somebody's day. But at the same time, you can- It really could be. Like you did. Like when it came to going back to Nebraska and helping out, like you were able to meet up with people and identify and reach out via social media. Uh, oh, I, I did everything that I assisted with through the Midwest flooding completely remotely only using social media for five weeks. Yeah. I, I did everything I did from DC. I view social media. But I could not have ever gotten that much done if it weren't had, had been for the fact that I was from there and yeah. knew people personally sure. either. Of course. Of course. Yeah, you had established relationships. That definitely makes a big yeah. difference. Yeah, if I didn't have that when I first started, we would have never gotten going the way that we did. And I, I think after, like, I think it was about 21 or 22 days that we were a team of about 24 people that literally organically came together. None of us knew each other at all. Still have never met none of us. Wow. Um, That's, I love it. And That's incredible. Yeah, organically came together. We all wanted to do something. And the unfortunate part, again, about, you know, the NGO realm is, especially in, again, disaster situations, which makes it so hard, is that you don't know who to trust. It, like you were saying earlier, I don't have time to do this or whatever, and I'm willing to give money, but I want to make sure it's going, it's actually getting utilized and yeah. the right thing's getting done with it. Um, that was kind of the same thing. We'd all for like a week before that we're trying to identify other organizations that were like legitimate or whatever and finding out no it's not and it caused all kinds of problems and whatnot and we kind of came together and I think by the end of it that we were still trying to come up with the actual pretty basic stats on it but I think that we that our group alone 20 24 people over 21 days that have never met each other I think delivered over a million dollars worth of supplies to people that needed them during that thank you so much everyone for coming and checking out yet another episode i hope that you are as invigorated by this conversation as i was just completely enthralled by the story and what she was able to do and accomplish it's absolutely phenomenal such a great model of what positive action can do and a shift in your mental focus and what kind of change you can actually create in the world by choice kelly embodies that perfectly and i love it and it's 
even better because we get a chance to spend two more episodes with her coming up in the next week. So if you like what you heard and you want to hear some more, you got to come back and check out Burn Your Boats. And if you have some friends that you think would be interested in the show and, and that have the, the energy that and the drive to go out there and, and choose something different and choose something greater, point them, point them this way. More than happy to, to continue to grow the audience and, and to get the word out there and, and inspire as many people as we can. The goal here is to, to affect change starting at the individual level. Every, everything else is downstream from that. All change in the world starts at the individual level, and that's what we're trying to see. We're trying to make that positive change and motivate people to choose themselves. So thanks again for coming. We appreciate your support, and and I really hope that you're getting as much out of this as, as you can. I will see you here next week with another episode, part two with Kelly Kroll.